Good morning, everyone. My name is Tanil, and I'll be doing the scripture reading. It's taken from Matthew 9, from verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you. Thanks, Tanil. So I want to make a few comments this morning just around um, last week, and uh, Yuri so beautifully uh, represented something of his experience of, of healing, and then we'll look at that amazing piece of scripture. But I just want to, I suppose, start by saying, wow, what, what a memorable experience we had. And, and when I say memorable, memorable means something happened that you won't forget. And uh, some of us, it was memorable because we experienced God for ourselves. Some of us, it was memorable because we watched someone else experience God. Um, my kids were sitting literally on the step watching Terry praying for people. And I remember just thinking, wow, I'm so glad they're not staring at YouTube right now. They're watching something of, of people living by faith, trying to live and love and serve God and do what the, the, the kingdom is all about. Um, for some, it was memorable because you maybe came for prayer and didn't experience the healing you had hoped for. Uh, we've had all kinds of reports this week. I've been privy, for whatever reason, I sent out the broadcast list, and so people have been messaging me back, which has meant I've had a roller coaster of a week for what it's worth, because I've got some messages of people going, yoo-hoo, I've never had anything like that in my life. And others who went, well, I don't know what just happened. And others who are going, I, I don't know if I still buy into this thing of healing and, and, and whether healing is, is really a, a real thing. I want to commend you as a church. One of the, the, the first thing I was like, oh, I was, I was emotionally all over the show. One moment I was going, yay. The other moment I was going, oh, this is complicated and, and tricky. And, uh, and then I found myself after a few days as I sort of normalized hearing all the feedback. And I found myself going, Wow, well done, church. I, I think it's in Acts chapter 19, somewhere around there, where uh, Paul moves on to a new city and he preaches the gospel. And, and it says these Berean people, they, they were more noble than the others because they studied the scriptures and they thought carefully about Paul's teachings. And I suddenly thought, wow, that's what you guys are. You guys are thoughtful. You, you're careful. Some of you have messaged me, I want to see more of this in the Bible. I want to understand this concept of healing in the scriptures. I, I still need some more teaching. And I found myself going, well done. That's amazing. I can't believe we've got a church full of people who are saying, I need more scripture. I, I want to get this more before I just wholeheartedly jump into it. That, that's, there's something good about that. It, it's really wonderful. And I want to commend us as a church for being a people who don't sit there and just nod and go, yep, 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 yep. One of the things that caught some people out was Terry used this one word, and, and almost everybody who's had a bit of a like, oh, I don't know if I agree with that, he went, I can almost guarantee you if you've got lower back issues. And almost like I had so many people going, I just can't believe he used the word guarantee. <laughs> anybody feel that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lights all flicked and the red lights went, guarantee, guarantee, guarantee. Well, I, I, 
maybe to de defend Terry for a moment, he, he certainly wasn't saying, guys, come to me, I've got guaranteed healing. Uh, I think anyone would know that that was not the spirit of his comment. I think the spirit of his comment there was to say, I've seen it so much, I feel like uh, lower back pain, that's one of the things I've prayed for and seen so much of. And, and, and I can almost guarantee, it was the spirit of the thing. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, we don't as a church believe that anyone can guarantee any healing, uh, anything of the miraculous, because we just don't have the power to do that. It's not a biblical teaching. And so we're never going to teach that you can claim some healing or claim anything from God for that matter. And so really just to, to put your minds at ease, that, that's not where we're going. Now, we do believe uh, as, as a leadership team and as a church that God can heal, that God does heal, and that in the future, he very likely will continue to heal people. Why he doesn't heal everyone all the time? Well, I think it's safe to say that's because he hasn't returned to restore all things. We, we live between the ages, and, and God in his divine sovereignty allows some things to happen and, and doesn't allow other things. And in his perfect love, it's his prerogative how and when he does that. The, the technical term is God's sovereignty. It's, it's how he does it. And we got a great talk uh, by Michael Eaton that could maybe help us to understand that. And maybe to, to kind of put your minds at ease as well, we are not a church who's going to eventually become, you know, defined by healing or miraculous stuff. I've, I've watched churches kind of become, that's their thing. No, that's not our thing. Our thing is, is Paul's thing. Our thing is Jesus' thing. It's the gospel. It's Christ and him crucified. That's our message. However, we do want to be a community that wrestles with all the difficult texts, that moves towards all the things that Jesus teaches, that Jesus taught, and that Jesus did, and to be able to engage with them. And, and from time to time, invite people in who might push us out of our comfort zone and go, whoa, what do we do with healing? Hey, we're not going to be defined by it, but we certainly are going to continue to trust God that he would use us in healing. Hey, that maybe amongst us there would be some even who would grow the gifts, grow in the gifts of, of healing. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts of healing. Hey, if, if we're a body and the body, well, why shouldn't some of the, the, the people in the body have some of those gifts? It's safe to say. So I'm, I, I can't explain why some don't get healed. I wish I could. If anybody can, come chat to me and we'll explain it next week. But uh, it, it, it's part of the mystery. One of the amazing things uh, I've had a, had a few messages of people saying, you know, I feel for some people maybe who, who don't have the maturity, who get a little disillusioned when somebody gets prayed for and they don't get healed. I, you know, the person said, I didn't get healed, but I, but I feel like I've got a bigger trust in God. I'm not, I'm not going to love God only if he heals me. And, and to be honest, I felt like that was the, the dominant thing. The dominant response was, I'm not, I'm not only going to trust God if he heals me. No, I'm going to trust God because he lived and he died for me and he, he's, he rose again and he's coming back. My trust is in his return and his amazing love in the present. Not in, not in the little uh, kind of charismatic gifts that he might or might not give. And we're a church that's not defined by that. We're, we're defined by the overarching gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we will continue. If, if there are people who, who are sick, we will continue. James says, if anyone's sick, they should go to the elders. The elders should anoint them with oil and trust that the prayer of faith would heal them. So we will continue to pray for healing, and we will continue to ask God to grow us in that. Does that sound cool? Hope I've answered some of your questions. We are a eldership team, pastoral team, whose phones are on and who want to keep walking with people. Um, but we are so grateful for the stuff God's doing. Cool. High five the person next to you.
And then nudge the person on the other side. I want to suggest to you, off the back of what this beautiful scripture said, that all of us, talking about miracles, by the way, all of us came with a more profound miracle-working tool to church today. That when you came to church, either in your car or in your pocket, was one of the most profound miracle-working tools that the Bible describes. You have it with you right now, if you came from home. You've got it. You've been given this incredible tool that the Bible, from the moment Jesus walked this earth, he utilized as one of the most profound ways to perform the miracle of transforming the world. The miracle of mission, the miracle of of world transformation happened with one little thing. Historically, it's been silver. It's been metallic. Nowadays, you get it in in plastic disc form sometimes. You get it in, in little blue things with buttons on them. It's called access to your home. It's called a key or a remote or a disc. Whatever it is that you have to let someone into your home. One of the most contentious things in the ministry of Jesus, if not the most contentious thing in Jesus' ministry, was who he ate with, whose homes he walked into. It's a, it's a crazy thought, by the way. We, don't even, we can't even imagine that. But Jesus, basically, for, for probably 40% of the reason Jesus went to the cross was because of who he ate with. The people he dined with became the very reason he ended up on the cross. We saw this text that we've just been reading that, that Tennille read for us. It says on hearing this, uh, so while Jesus was having dinner in verse 10 at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were so offended. They were annoyed deeply. We're talking today about hospitality. Arthur Boers says it like this. He says, if you can read the Gospels without getting hungry, you're not paying attention. Jesus lived in meals. He loved to dine with people. He was a person who was accused of eating and drinking, that he was, a, he was almost a drunkard, not because he drank too much, but he spent so much time around tables connecting with people and people that he should never have, according to the kind of cultural norms, have spent time with. John Tyson describes hospitality like this. He says, it's creating space at the table for people to encounter God's scandalous welcome of grace. Creating space at the table for people to encounter God's scandalous welcome of grace. I don't know if you know this, but people ache for this. People are desperate for a sense of welcome and a sense of belonging. You might not even say this. You might say, you know what, I'm an introvert. The last thing I want is an invitation until you're sitting at the table of people filled with love and authenticity. There's something about being welcomed in. There's something about sitting in a person's home and feeling like you're at home despite the fact that you probably shouldn't be. Hey, when we planted this church, one of the words over Nix and I, I think it was something we said, we just felt like God almost said to us, this church is going to be planted on the back of our dining room table. It's going to be planted with meal upon meal upon meal around our dining room table and progressively around multiple hundreds of other dining room tables. 
Because at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the New Testament, is this amazing sense of God's welcome, of this table of fellowship around which people should be included. Full disclosure moment, I'm probably not naturally wired towards hospitality. I'm, I'm more introverted. I find myself very content in my own company. I can spend hours by myself, if not days, and I can be totally joyful. Eventually, I need people. But probably a layer deeper than my introversion is a deep need to be surrounded by people. I love to be alone, but I love nothing more than to be in a functioning community of ordinary people doing life together where they're comfortable and living in a way that describes the hospitality of God. I've had moments traveling around the world, uh, predominantly to places like Madagascar and India, where I've experienced some phenomenal hospitality. Been in some people's homes who, who probably uh, don't earn in a year what some of us earn in a week, and yet somehow these people will welcome me or us into their home, sleep on the floor and give their main bedroom to myself. And you're going, no, please, I, I don't want this. And they say, oh, we, we couldn't think of anything better than to give you this space. A sense of, of the welcome of God where you're going, I don't deserve it. I should never get this. This is not a talk, by the way, on entertaining. We live in an entertainment world. So when you hear hospitality, you're kind of living in the world of the Garden and Home magazine or something like that. I don't read many of those, but, but you're thinking, how do I put out all the best stuff and make people feel amazing and show them how clean and neat my home is and how perfect everything is? That's called entertainment, where you have people over that you kind of like and you hope is going to have chemistry with you and your wife and your kids, and you entertain them. And, uh, and then as they walk out, they say something like, thanks so much. Next time you must come to us. And, uh, and, and there's this kind of reciprocation. We'll do it for you, and then you do it for us. And we live in this bubble, this ecosystem of entertainment. I'm not talking about entertainment. Now, I'm talking today about biblical hospitality. I'm talking about the hospitality that the scriptures describe. One author says, long before there was a hospitality industry, think of scores of books on hotel management, travel, leisure, and entertaining of guests. The practice of welcoming strangers was central to the Christian faith. Hospitality was invented in many ways by the church. The word hospitality, by the way, comes uh, in two places in the scriptures predominantly. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, and then gives this command, practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. It's a command, practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, verse 9 says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know what the word for hospitality is? Philozenia. Philo, which is the word love, not the pastry. Philo, P-H-I-L-O, which is love. And xenia, which is strangers. Remember, think of the word xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear, phobia, of strangers. That's where kind of you get the word xenophobia. It's a fear of people who we aren't like us, who are different to us. The Bible uses the word hospitality, the love of strangers, the inclusion of strangers into our space to the point that they feel welcomed and at home. I can see some people twitching on their seat. They're going, yo, this is awkward. Are you really saying this is at the heart of the gospel? The answer is yes. 
And our culture has lived so isolated from this concept that we've continuously just followed the cultural norm where you build your walls, you create your intercoms, and you create greater and greater space, exacerbated a lot through COVID, where we've learned to deal with an increased sense of isolation and a lack of hospitality. I read a 2018 Daily Maverick article, which I found fascinating, where uh, Garth Jaffet is doing some interviews and taking some different uh, opinions and, and uh, kind of looked at the dean of, of public health uh, study, where she said this. She said, the global health threat that worries her most is a rising epidemic of loneliness. A study from the Brian Young University in the U.S. puts the heightened risk of dying from loneliness in the same category as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, being an alcoholic or abusing other substances, and failing to exercise enough. It also surpasses health risks associated with obesity. Speaking about loneliness. And they carry on, uh, obviously it's Daily Maverick, saying this is increasingly evident that we South Africans are not immune to this. With rapid urbanization, crime, and a history of social dislocation has served to, in a sense, isolate people even more. Whether it's the pensioner who's afraid to leave her home, the migrant who feels like the, the other in his or her community, or the person who withdraws because she's been racially stereotyped in the workplace. This problem exists and needs to be addressed. Who knew that right in our pockets, sitting in the center console of our car, is a key to missional power and transformation like nothing you could imagine? Who knew that you didn't need to have a fancy home or a valence, uh, whatever, I don't know what they make, furniture, to make people feel loved and to live out the mission of God? Maybe you, you think of the mission of God and you think, you know what, you've got to do something, you've got to tell people the gospel. Every person you meet, you've got to give them a Tim Keller book, great, do that, I think it's a cool idea. Or you think you've got to invite them to church, cool, do that. Or you've got to hand them out tracts at the robots, wouldn't suggest that one. But maybe you've got some vision of, of mission that is like beyond you and it's so hectic. Jesus' vision of mission and, and the scripture's vision of mission is actually very underwhelming. Open your door. Unlock it and let some people in. Let some people to sit around your table and to live life with you, to experience what it means to be welcomed without feeling like they deserve it. That's not because every person doesn't deserve it. It's because we live in a world that, that lives on an invites-only uh, agenda, that lives in the sense of, I'll never get into that space. I, I'll never be welcome. And yet Jesus breaks all the protocols. He moves in and he, he redefines what the table means. The table was such an important place in the life of a Jewish person. You see, these Pharisees who had been around for about 300 years in the Jewish community, they, they had this, this massive vision. You see, they were, they were frustrated that they were always oppressed by another power. In Jesus' time, they were oppressed by the Romans. And they had this vision that if they could live holy lives. And they had this upstream vision. They said if the temple and the altar could be pure and the priests could sort themselves out and live pure and holy lives, and, and, and if every Jewish home could model themselves living pure lives and that the, the table would almost be a replica of the altar 
And if this table could be purified again and that the Jewish people would once again let the right people around the table, they would once again be able to enlist the power and the presence of God to push out these oppressive Roman people. And once again, they could live out their their kind of kingdom mandate that they had when David and others were ruling. They were waiting for this this powerful thing to come in. and, And they lived by these strict rules, trying to enlist the favor of God. And these Pharisees said, you know what, the table is a precious place. It's modeled after the altar. And you can't just let anyone come and eat at this table. It's crucial that you choose the right people. And you'll see in some of Jesus' parables that he explains this. You think about that one parable he tells, I think, in Luke chapter 14, where he says, be careful when you go to sit at a table, because you know what? Most of you want to go sit right at the top, right next to the master, but it could get awkward, because the master might say, hey, do you mind just shuffling down a little? I've got some other more esteemed guests coming. And he's talking about humility. And he says, no, no, rather sit far on the other side and, 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 and far away and let the master invite you higher up. He's talking about a teaching on humility, but he's also explaining a bunch about the table. Scott Barchi says it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. It was a kind of boundary marker of who was and who wasn't holy. Whoever you led around your table represented who was acceptable to God and to you. It was a place of rank that you could rank people socially. You could set people up and create a space where where people would be ordered rightly. It was a place that organized the hierarchy of society. And Jesus tells parables that begin to unbundle that. And Jesus lives in a way that is so offensive to that because the Pharisees are saying, this is our place. We're going to change the world if we get the table right. Joachim Jeremias, hope I'm saying his name right. He says this, to understand what Jesus was doing, eating with sinners, it is important to realize that in the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. Including people in meant sharing life. The table was central to their convictions about the world. I think about South Africa and I go, wow. Isn't the table a prophetic picture of the change that South Africa needs? We could say that apartheid's been sorted, but I wonder if the church still has an opportunity to truly turn the world around, to turn the South African world around by asking the question, who's sitting at our table? The table is probably the best reflection of the kind of convictions you have about who people are, who's worthy, and what you really value. Are we trying to get more people of higher rank around our table? Are we trying to keep people out because we just prize our our perfect little serene home? Or are we trying to emulate the love of Jesus? Jesus has this amazing way of connecting with sinners and tax collectors, and he radically offends the the, the Pharisees in so doing. The table's not meant to be a place of exclusion. The home is meant to be a place of inclusion. And sinners in Jesus' time, the definition, I suppose, were people who weren't willing or weren't able to live up to the Pharisees' definition of holiness. That that was a sinner. They they defined it, and, and some weren't willing to. 
do it. Think of tax collectors. They're going, actually, I'm not willing. I've chosen my course. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low. It was the Jewish guy who had defected to the Romans. He was working for the Romans. He was taking money from the Jews. He was keeping some for himself, giving others to the Romans, and he was getting really, really wealthy doing it. And Jesus goes and eats with them, and everybody goes, you are unacceptable. How can you do this, Jesus? But he's so filled with power and he's so filled with love that, that they're torn because he's, he's, he's connecting with them and he's, he's so compelling of a person. Only Jesus could bridge this amazing divide. And so they ask this question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Can you feel the tension in the air as Jesus met, went into these homes? This was not just a meal and they're going, I can't believe he's eating with these guys. This meant so much to a Jewish person. What do you think about mission? I've asked you that question. What do you think about reaching people? What if I said it was as simple as simply caring for people, including them in your home, including them in your life? I love how at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, who's that young tax, that short tax collector, he wasn't young, and Jesus uh, finds him. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. Today I'm coming to have a meal with you. And at the very end of the story, after Zacchaeus has received Jesus into his home and has had this amazing moment and this encounter, and he says he's going to give back to the poor and he's going to give back his money. And he just has this radical transformation of heart. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This act of moving into someone's home, this act of, of God's amazing hospitality brings about an experience, a transformation of a man's heart. Zacchaeus wasn't transformed by Jesus going, here's the five steps you need to pray. Zacchaeus wasn't transformed by, by kind of walking through the sinner's prayer. Zacchaeus wasn't transformed by being told, you know, this, that, and the next thing. Zacchaeus was transformed by radical hospitality by the king of kings. Yes, I'm sure he explained the gospel. Yes, I'm sure he made sense of all of that. But it was because he went into his home. He ate with him, and it was the presence of this amazing love. It wasn't a good theory. It was a lived experience. What if we, through the use of our own home key, through the use of our own kitchen table, not by changing our lifestyles, but by including people in our already existing lifestyles, could potentially bring about some radical change in people's lives. We're talking about the way of Jesus. We're not reading Jesus' teachings and going, cool, that's good for you. We're saying, Jesus, how do we assimilate this into our way? I wonder if we could get a mic for uh, Ryan and Karen, and I want to ask them some questions. These two, uh, the Fissers, as I uh, like to call them, they have, I think, live a, a fairly awesome lifestyle and, and really show a hunger to try to, to live this value of hospitality out. And so I want to just ask them two questions. Hello, Ryan and Corin. <laughs> You're looking good. I saw you running on the road on Friday morning. You, were, you looked really strong, hey? Got a good running technique. I didn't hoot, no, sorry. I thought about it, but it was too late. You were so fast going in the other direction. I didn't have a chance. Otherwise, I would have. But um, I just want to ask you guys two questions, and uh, we've had a bit of conversation about this, and, and also just want to honor you guys, because I think the way that you model hospitality and humility, because they're going to keep saying, we're not that good at it, but I think they're pretty good at it. Um, firstly, question is this. What one or two habits or practices do you have in your family 
that I suppose express this kind of Jesus-style hospitality. So what have you guys been trying, okay. sort of getting right? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess our current situation is a bit crazy. Like you mentioned earlier, it's a biblical craziness, so it's cool. Um, we have nine people living in our house. It's been up to ten before. Um, Only three of them are their, their kids. Yeah. And I guess it's because we have the, the means, because God has blessed us with um, the means to, to share. Um, so we've just made the most of it, not just for ourselves, but to try to share it with as many people who need it as possible. Um, and I guess our, our aim is to, yeah, to share it with people who don't have the opportunity or have um, less than we do. Um, so we've had uh, widows and people struggling with divorces and people who've lost their jobs. And uh, our garden has moved into a room in our garage and a whole bunch of people come in and out. And um, yeah, our, our aim is just to share what we have been given and, and don't keep it for ourselves. Because I have this legitimate fear that we get to heaven one day and God says, cool, so what did you do with all the, the stuff that we gave you? Mm. And if you say, oh no, we enjoyed it, thank you very much. That's a I think that's a missed opportunity, and it's really not the purpose of um, God giving you the stuff in the first place. And it's not just money, it's, it's time and energy and love and, um, and all the other things that go with it. And as a principle, we aim to share what God's given us just as a, a thing, yeah. Brilliant. Karen, you want to add to that? These people want to give you a round of applause, really. Wow. And there's more to come. I mean, it only gets better from here. Karen hasn't even spoken yet. <laughs> um. Roger asked us to summarize, so I wrote some notes. Um, the first voice note was like five minutes long. Um, okay, uh, so it was practices and habits, I think was the question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some of the practices we have is um, we have an extra room, or uh, two rooms, because the kids all want to be in one room now. Anyway, um, so if we find a room in our house that's empty, we go and we pray, and we like, God, find the right person in the wrong circumstance for this space. And we ask around, do you know anyone that needs a spot? Um, so that's one of our practices. Um, also, when people move into the neighborhood, we bake cookies or bread and we take it to them to welcome them. Um, that's, you know, you don't have to have a big house or a big space to do that. Um, then uh, the, the people, I, I think the people that stay with us, they, they do pay us a little bit of money to, to cover costs and all that. So I always felt like, we're benefiting from this. It's not really biblical hospitality, but I'm um, chatting through with Ryan and Roger this week. I think it's more like the heart to disciple and to love the people in our home, which is what makes mm. it different. Um, other than that, uh, uh, we have pizza night every Friday where we invite two of us around and um, just family dinners. I think that's uh, yeah a, a big thing. If it's dinner time, whoever's in the house, come join in. We, you know, you can add a sandwich if you're hungry at the end. <laughs> and uh, uh, we do, you know what you, you called it, highs, lows, and buffaloes a few weeks yes. ago. We've always done best part of your day, worst part of your day. And I think what's been so humbling is often, because we have Airbnb guests coming in there from all over the world, um, we'll say best part of your day, and they'll go, this, this sitting around the table with you guys and, yeah. and talking. And wow. we're just, you're like, it, it's, so, it's so big what God has given us, you know. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, I've got one more question. Um, what are you learning about the power of ordinary hospitality? I know we, you put me onto um, what's it, Rosaria Butterfield's beautiful book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she talks about ordinary hospitality. Um, what are you learning about the power of ordinary hospitality as opposed to entertainment, I suppose? Um, yeah, 
We haven't never thought of it as entertainment, but um, I think the word ordinary is very important because I don't think hospitality is a, a, a gift or a, a, there's, a, there's no spirit of hospitality. Um, I know lots of people have preached on it and I've heard, read, even read a book about it, but I don't think it's the case. And I don't necessarily feel like hosting people and having people in my space and breaking my lamps and scratching my walls, <laughs> but we did anyway. And um, it's just a logical decision to follow what the Bible's talking about and what it recommends and being obedient to that. It's like a lot of other things. You don't get the feeling first and then do it. You just sort of do it. Um, and uh, yeah, sometimes it's hard. It's actually, it's often very hard, but I'm, I think I'm a lot like Roger where I sometimes just put my headphones on and go close the garage door. I still have follow people following me and talking to me, but it's, it's fine. Um, so I'm not, I'm not actually naturally that kind of person to have people in my space all the time. It's, sometimes I really don't enjoy it, but I do it anyway, because it's way more important to, um, um, in my mind, is more important to be honorable and obedient to the word than wow. want your own space and comfort and happiness and mm. that kind of and feelings. Yeah. So good. Um, and then in terms of like what we've seen, um, I think... Oh, it was quite a breakthrough for me when I just lowered my standards. Like you were saying, entertainment versus hospitality, when I would say to other moms, like, can we just be real with each other? Our houses are, mess, are a mess sometimes, and the kids live there, um, and they're not perfect. And um, when I chilled out and was willing to do, like, cheesy toast for supper for people, um, I found they chilled out and they lowered not just their home expectations, but they lowered their guard as well, and it created um, deeper conversations. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that I've, I think is quite powerful is uh, our kids are growing up with many different cultures in our home, many different ideas, and for them to see, like, the word stands up to these ideas. You know, there's a, a space for apologetics and debate and um, chatting about God with lots of different types of people. Um, and so, our, yeah, our kids are, are growing up in that, not like a, a bubble and then suddenly university. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So good. Just one last thing. We, we actually call it the FISA Discipleship Program. <laughs> when we get a new person in the house. <laughs> oh, no, we definitely do. It's, it's got a new name by the sound of things. You've, you've just and called it that. It's just what we, what we haven't mentioned is it's just a fantastic opportunity to talk about God and the Bible and... And we, we never really push it, or we hardly ever push it. It often just happens naturally, yeah. whether it's the, the, the worst unsaved drug addict in our house or someone who's working for Hillsong. Mm. We, we get to know them, we talk nonsense, and um, inevitably at some point in time when topics about the Bible or God come up, and I, I don't know, it's, it makes it so easy for those opportunities and to talk to people about that, and it's right on our doorstep, on the other side of our doorstep, on the inside. Um, and that's, we really enjoy that, actually. It's quite fun. So, wow. Karen and I would often, before we go and talk to a person or a new person or someone in the flat, we'd um, have a little plan and have a little discussion first and plan our attack on how to, on how to love them and how to bring up God in a natural way. in a way. weird way. <laughs> Sometimes it's a weird way. It's lovely. Guys, I love it. There's a team, you know, the beauty of team as well. I, I can pick up a sense of team. And, and partnership together. And, and you guys include your kids. You guys have modeled so much of even including your kids in worship, including your kids on this mission, including your kids on, on loving people different to yourself. Um, it's a wonderful thing. We're so grateful for you guys. And I'd love us to honor them with a round of applause. And thanks for sharing, guys. So grateful.
Hospitality and the table should be a place of healing. I think that's where Jesus walks into people's lives and he begins to heal. And I would expect that in so many ways, probably for us, if you look back at some deep and real healing, uh, yes, it's happened sometimes in the auditorium at church, but probably the even deeper healing has happened along on the go in somebody's home, sitting around their table, sitting in their lounge after a meal and, and actually going, okay, I'm done talking small talk. I actually want to, I want to talk more about what's going on in my life the pains I'm going through, the realities of, of the depth of, of my, my fears, my anxieties, whatever it may be. The, the, you can't do that in, in artificial environments. It's in the home where you eat cheesy toast for supper and you realize I am sitting across from a human being and they've got their own stuff and I feel safe enough to share my stuff. We should expect that kind of healing, racial, relational, spiritual healing to happen in our homes. We're sitting on a sleeping giant in the form of our homes that are going empty week in and week out. The table should be a place of belonging. Honestly, I think uh, some suggest that the promiscuity in our world is primarily because people are searching just for somewhere to feel at home. Just for a night, just for a moment, let me feel like somebody has seen me, somebody's heard me. And so people might find themselves sleeping around, moving from home to home. Imagine the church just opened their front doors and said, why don't you come here? Don't waste your time there. Another person who you don't know, spending more of your emotional, physical, relational energy, only to be left more empty than before. Come sit at our table. Come have a meal. Philozenia, the love of strangers. People, strangers are not finding someone off the street who we don't know. It's, it's trusting God with the people we interact with, the people we connect with, the people we walk through life with and realize, what's the Father doing? Oh, he's, he's doing something with them. They should be in our home. Now, now the Fissers are probably a few stages ahead of me. I, I don't have nine people in our home all the time. And you might not have had anyone in your home for nine months. The point is, is we've got to ask the question, how do we move forward? How do we become the kind of place? You don't need a fancy home. You don't need a big home. You don't even need to own a dining room table. You need to be a human being who learns to love and welcome people in. It's a place of belonging. It's a place of witness. Ryan and Corin shared that so well. It's a place of beauty in the ordinary. People aren't looking to be wowed by our hospitality or who we are. And honestly, I think the entertainment industry has ruined the church's ability to be hospitable. And today I'm calling us to take back biblical hospitality and to say no to fancy, impressive meals. Yes, from time to time, some of you foodies are going to blow our socks off. But often it's a case of just come in and do what's ordinary. We're finishing homework, you're going to come uh, sit with us, and we want you to feel at home here, and uh, we're going to eat something, and we're going to listen to your story, and you're going to listen to our story, and we're going to find out how the day was, and then we're going to go home, because our kids are going to sleep, but we just want you to know that you're welcome here. We just want you to know that this is a place that's safe for you whenever you need it. It's called biblical hospitality. It's a place of beauty in the ordinary. It's a place that starts in the gospel. One author says it like this, all of human life begins with God's act of hospitality, with God's making a place for us in the world that God created, a world that he had no claim to inhabit. God knew that this offer was dangerous because he was the, we were 
the outsiders, and we might defile the pristine world, but he welcomed us anyway. Having been embraced by God, we must, take, we must make space for others and invite them in, even our enemies, says Miroslav Volf. God's hospitality came at a cost. His only son had to suffer and die, rise again in vindication so that we might have a place once again at God's table. Hospitality is at the core of the Christian experience. It's treating outsiders like insiders, just as God treated us. I do hope today that if you're looking in at the Christian faith, that you would understand that the primary invitation of the gospel is not to clean up your act or to get better. I hope that you understand that in Jesus Christ, God doesn't look at you and say, sort yourself out, stop being a naughty sinner. That in the gospel, we see a God who moves towards people who feel like they shouldn't be on the inside, and he sits with them at the very closest place, and he says, I want to be with you. And as we allow him in at our table, yes, things change, but it's because we allow him in, because we say yes to this amazing, amazingly hospitable God. Hospitality will cost us, but it'll never cost us what it cost him to let us into his inner circle. And so today, as we move towards this table, I want to remind you that this table is very different to the table that the early church ate at. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes and he says, you know what, I've got nothing good to say about the way you guys are eating. It was such an absolute mess, the way they were taking communion. He says in verse 17, he says, in the following directives, I've got no praise for you. I've got nothing good to say. For your meetings do more harm than good. I hope that's not true of us. In verse 21, he says, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. So like some of, the, the, some of the, the besties, they're all hanging out together and they're eating their own food. And before even the, the less wealthy guys have arrived, they've had so much communion wine that they're drunk. Honestly, that's what it says. It says, as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Come to Elkanah High School on a Sunday morning. Hopefully you don't see that. Verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. I'm putting the word of God in front of us. This is a tough one to work out. This is a real challenging word. That is why in verse 30, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is code for are no longer. This is not God's being unreasonable and God saying, you know what, you guys don't eat right and blah, 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 and so, you know, some of you are going to pass away. I think what's happening here is God is saying, my vision for hospitality is so beautiful, it is so precious, it is so otherworldly, don't mess with it. My vision for inclusion and bringing in the lonely and the least and the last and the lost is so special, don't mess with it. If you mess with the table, you mess with my heart, you're messing with something so precious to me that you start to compromise your own souls. Don't do it. The table is at the heart of the gospel, and it's a table that says all who will may come. Anyone who wants to be part of Jesus Christ, come. Come and be included in this beautiful table of love. And he says, go and do likewise. Does your table reflect the table of God? This amazing welcome where we bring nothing of ourselves and get to give all of God's amazing love.
Maybe you're too afraid to preach the gospel. Can I suggest at least open your front door? Start there. Love some people into your world. And today as we take communion, I'm gonna ask us to stand. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. I'm gonna ask you to reflect on your own use of your front door. You can stand up, like I said, waiting for the first person to do it. And as we take communion this morning, I'm going to ask you to, if you're okay with this, to be a little brave and to just maybe find someone that you maybe haven't met. Uh, Maybe it's a couple, maybe you're new, we don't want to freak you out, but the point is, is we want you to feel And for us to feel like we're stepping out of our comfort zones, the table, what they were getting wrong was they were excluding. They were going, let's go have a drink together and let's eat the Lord's Supper and let's leave those people we don't know. And especially they were leaving the poor and the marginalized out because they couldn't afford it. They were working longer hours. They couldn't get there. Hey, I wonder if today we could represent and reflect a new way that we're bringing into our community, the way of Jesus, which says there are no divides. There shouldn't be people I'm I'm primarily only allowing around my table. I want to move towards the last. Move towards people, even in this auditorium, I think, I don't know them. They last on my list to move towards. I'm gonna move towards, I wanna pray with them. And, And it might be as simple as, can I take communion with you? You take the cup, you take the bread, and you say, can we pray together? And you just go, Lord, I pray that you make us as hospitable as you are hospitable to us. Thank you for dying for us. That's all, don't get fancy. And then sip the wine the juice in our case, and eat the bread and say thank you for your love that people like us can be brought together and could be in your amazing story. Can we do that together? Maybe the band can just, I think we don't have any sound quite yet, but um, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna move towards the table and you be as bold and moving forward or as, um, as, as kind of whatever you wanna do, but I wanna try and include some, you to include some people in our communion moment. Sound good? Can I have a thumbs up? Most of you. Father, thank you that whilst we might still not necessarily have all the hospitality of the gospel in our hearts, you are the one who found us first. Your divine initiative laid a table for us before we even considered a meal with you. The scriptures are clear that before the foundation of the world, you moved towards us. You died for us. You knew this was coming and you wanted to include us in your love. And I pray, God, that today as we take of this table and as we pray together, Lord Jesus, that we would just get a fresh taste of the miracle of welcome, the miracle of being at home, in your home, in your space. Thank you for your broken body and your shed blood that makes this all possible. We thank you that you modeled this and that on the night before you were to die, you broke bread with your disciples and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you gave them the wine and you said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We do this in remembrance of you. This is for those of us who say, I believe. Maybe today, could be your moment of crossing the threshold, walking into the, the love of Christ. Maybe as, you, as you've listened, you've said, I need in. All you need to do this morning is to, is to say yes to Christ. Maybe your way of saying yes is you take communion and you say, I trust. I say yes to the love of God. I accept his invitation. And by faith, I receive his beautiful love. I receive his forgiveness. 
Without him, I would have nothing. With him, I have everything. Let's go to the communion tables. There's two at the front. I know there's some at the top as well, at the back.